O lost sad men, what terror is this that you suffer? Night shrouds you to the knees, your heads, your faces. Dry wretch of death runs around like fire and sticks. Your cheeks are streaming. These fair walls and pedestals are dripping crimson blood. And thick with shades is the entryway, the courtyard thick with shades, passing a thirst toward Erebus into the dark. The sun is quenched in heaven. From Book 20 of the Odyssey, as translated by Robert Fitzgerald. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this present series of the podcast is known as The Greek Sun. Today's episode will finish the first unit of episodes in this series, all of which concerned the most ancient of Greek history. We have been studying the time period from the Paleolithic, when the first hunter-gatherers may have passed through the peninsula, down to the years just before the Classical period. This episode will briefly cover the period known as the Dark Ages of Greece, which came after the fall of the Mycenaean culture in the 12th century BC. Before we begin, though, I would like to remind you to check out the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org if you're not on it already. There you can listen to the episodes, see some helpful maps and pictures, buy some Western Traditions merchandise, and otherwise support the podcast through PayPal or Patreon. Please remember, whenever you find this podcast on Spotify or another app, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. All that said, let's get started. April 16th, 1178 BC. The world stills. At midday, the skies darken. A shadow falls over the wine-dark sea. Turn your vision to that place you never look, directly at the sun. But it is not there. Instead, there is a black hole in the heavens, ringed with wisping fire, and it casts its phantom light over everything. For a short time, the world seems drained of hue. Can this omen be without meaning? According to many scholars, there is some significance to this event. Now, modern astronomers, inheriting their knowledge from the Babylonians and enhancing it with the latest technology, they've calculated the day and year of numerous past eclipses with stunning precision. They also know that the eastern Mediterranean was the location over which this particular eclipse was total. And, Historians can tell us more about the time period around this eclipse. In 1177 BC, just one year after it, the first onslaught of the Sea Peoples is recorded in the Annals of History. You may remember this era of history from a previous episode. So suddenly, in the 12th century BC, ancient established kingdoms such as Egypt and the various realms in the Levant and in Anatolia, they all found themselves under attack. Hordes of wild men in ships, as they were described, descended upon the coasts of the eastern Mediterranean. They ravaged towns and cities, leaving behind decimated armies and smoking ruins. Their tribal names are also recorded in, in Egyptian history accounts, and some of the names of the tribes, as rendered in ancient Egyptian, 
seem awfully close to Greek names that we already know, like the Achaeans and the Danaeans, two different terms that Homer uses to describe the constituents of the Greek army outside the walls of Troy. It is easy to surmise that there is some connection between the Sea Peoples and the Greeks of the post-Trojan War era. Now, initially, you might think that a solar eclipse occurring the year before the appearance of the Sea Peoples is a mere coincidence, and any belief otherwise is simply superstition. Normally, I would agree with you, especially if someone was trying to tell me that the eclipse caused the end of the Bronze Age, but that's not what I'm suggesting. Literary scholars once assumed, as I have stated before, that the Trojan War was a myth made up out of whole cloth by Greek bards during the peninsula's prehistory. Thanks to the 19th century adventurer archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann, we now not only know that Troy existed, but that it went through several incarnations. Like many ancient cities in the Bronze Age, it suffered numerous upheavals, disasters, and overthrows. These catastrophes are evidenced in layers of earth, numbered by archaeologists beneath the present-day surface, each layer showing a city in its different stages of growth and decline, and occasionally its sudden destruction. Of particular note is a stratum of soil known as Troy 7A, which shows a sudden end to the city between approximately 1192 and 1184 B.C., The excavated ruins show signs of assault and charring due to widespread fire, like someone looted and burned the city. All this in the decade previous to the ruinous appearance of the Sea Peoples in the eastern Mediterranean, a decade, about the time that it took Odysseus to get back home. And the text of the Odyssey ties itself to these mysterious archaeological coincidences. I open this episode with a quote from Book 20 of the Odyssey. At At that particular stage of the book, Odysseus has returned home in disguise as a beggar and has already suffered mistreatment from the suitors. Amid the pandemonium, a visionary or seer that serves the suitors' religious needs stands up among them and lets loose those words that I quoted. Shortly after, the prophet leaves, obviously having seen the writing on the wall and understanding that a vengeful Odysseus was near, if not already present. But we have discussed the plot of the Odyssey already. What's of new value here is the words of this visionary. He makes reference to a sudden change in the atmosphere of the suitor's endless party, and he references the darkening of the sun. Quote, the sun is quenched in heaven, unquote. Many historians look back on this passage as evidence or reference to an eclipse, and if you think that this is just modern cranks stretching things to lend some modicum of credence to their another crazy theory that you can find on the internet, you would be wrong. Even Plutarch, a Greek historian who lived in the 1st and 2nd century AD, even he assumed that this, that this passage referred to an eclipse. So if these calculations and surmises are correct, Here we have a time for the return of Odysseus to his home on Ithaca, sometime on or around April 16, 1178 BC. The sun darkens. He defeats the suitors in a bloody, savage combat. He wins back his wife and his son and his household. And then, a year later, the Sea Peoples begin their first assault on civilization in the eastern Mediterranean. Is there a connection? If so, what is it? Should we read this as a sign that Odysseus and the other returned warriors renewed their campaign of violence after a brief rest in the post-Trojan years? 
that they set sail for more conquests? All this contributes to the mystery of the identity of the Greeks and their Homeric epics even more, but it does not really answer our questions. Were the Sea Peoples Mycenaeans, or were they the ones who destroyed the Mycenaeans? One theory is that the Greek heroes of the Trojan War are, indeed, Mycenaeans, as a loosely aligned set of minor kingdoms with shared royal bloodlines, they maintained hegemony over much of the region, including the Aegean Sea and Crete. The city of Troy, however, was not part of the Mycenaean alliance, and Troy controlled the straits between Anatolia and the European mainland, between Asia and Europe, a region which Constantinople would control for a thousand years and maintain an empire based on that control. That the two sides would come into conflict was perhaps inevitable. But what would have been the aftermath of the destruction of Troy, the elimination of a place which functioned as a major commercial nexus for the entire region? Because there is no sign that the Greeks conquered and took the reins from Troy, no sign that they then assumed control and management of trade. They simply left and went home, leaving smoking ruins behind. It would be like someone destroying Los Angeles and then instead of trying to benefit from controlling all the trade that would enter the ports there and then need to be distributed throughout the United States, instead they just destroy the city and leave the infrastructure wrecked and useless. We also know, however, from Greek literary tradition and from ruins uncovered since then, that the Mycenaean culture and language was replaced at this time by the Dorian Greek culture and language. I have mentioned this in previous episodes. Traditionally, this was known as the return of the Heraclids, that is, the return of the descendants of Heracles. The Spartans of later ages were descended from these Dorians culturally, if not genetically. But there is no real evidence to support the idea of this invasion. It would be helpful if it did. Then we could complete the puzzle and say that the Mycenaeans weakened themselves in the Trojan War and were then conquered by the Dorians from the north who saw their opportunity. Then, one or the other or both groups became the Sea Peoples, raiding the eastern Mediterranean to support themselves in the wake of the civilizational decline in Greece. Simply put, however, there is not any evidence to support this very plausible idea. It remains one of many theories about how and why Greece descended into its Dark Age. What do we know for sure, then? We know that things in the region, economics, security, technology, all suffer decline after the fall of Troy. Historians have called the period that follows the, Tro the Trojan War, they've called this the Dark Age of Greece. But what do we mean by Dark Age? This is an, an, is an abused term, to be sure. When we come to study the Middle Ages a few years from now, we will see how this term was applied to a time period in European history that was not really so dark, as much as it was just different from the Roman period that preceded it. Nevertheless, things certainly took a step in a different direction in Greece during the centuries that followed the fall of Troy in terms of trade and politics. We speak of the end of the Bronze Age, but what do we mean by that? I have mentioned it briefly before that the production of bronze requires primarily the combination of copper and tin. The resulting product is a very hard metal that was vastly superior to pure copper when it came to making tools and weapons. However, 
The troubles of the 12th century BC interrupted the free flow of trade and, coincidentally, tin and copper ores were not typically found in the same region in this part of the world, in the eastern Mediterranean. Societies that had easy access to one of these ingredients for bronze usually had to trade to get the other. So when trade was interrupted, it became nearly impossible to produce bronze. Fortunately enough, by this time in history, various cultures had mastered the forging of iron. Now, you might be prejudiced in favor of iron and wonder why people had not already adopted iron in widespread fashion if they already had kilns capable of the high heat levels necessary to forge it. There is this idea that iron, since it succeeded bronze, is the superior metal, but bronze is actually stronger than wrought iron. It is preferable, therefore. Iron tools and weapons only became superior to those made from bronze after many years of experimentation and advancement had improved iron production, and this only happened because people in this region, this nexus of highly advanced societies, people here were forced to switch to iron because of the breakdown of the copper and tin trade in the 12th century BC. In fact, bronze continued to be used in preference to iron for centuries in regions of the world where it was not so hard to bring together copper and tin. So to be clear, when we speak of the end of the Bronze Age, we are not speaking of a step forward in material progress in the history of the West. We are really speaking of a backstep of a technological regression for a short period of time in the history of the nations in the Eastern Mediterranean. That is one of the reasons that we say things like the Greek Dark Ages, because it is specifically this area, once home to the brilliant Minoans of Crete and their successors, the Mycenaeans, it is this area that experienced a breakdown in societal order and in technological progress. The Greek region does not recover for many centuries. In the East, however, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Persians will continue to establish great empires, building roads and erecting magnificent palaces and fortresses. This is entirely the reason why we will find the Greeks in the situation they are, seven centuries later, just after 500 BC, with the Persians knocking on the doors, and the Greeks only just recently having climbed out of their political and technological recession. The cities of Athens and Sparta and Thebes, glorious in our cultural memory, are really just hick towns in comparison to the metropolises of Babylon, of Nineveh, Susa, and Persepolis, just to name a few of the Middle Eastern cities at this time. But what was like life like then in Greece during this period, this span of several centuries between the fall of Mycenae and the rise of cities such as Athens? We know very little, but we do know that it was not without its own splendor. This is the age, after all, of Hesiod and Homer. And as far as we can tell, this is the period when many of our favorite Greek myths were composed and told. I have utilized the writings of Hesiod many times in earlier episodes. This writer lived sometime, most likely, during either the 8th or 9th century BC, and he may have been a contemporary of Homer. You can make arguments for Hesiod living both prior to Homer or, or after Homer. He composed several major works for which he is remembered, but only two really remain whole to this day. The others exist only in fragments. We don't know a lot about this poet, Hesiod, but we do know that he was from Boeotia, a region in Greece to the north of Athens. 
Its capital was Thebes, a city famous in Greek history for many reasons. One interesting link between Hesiod and the Homeric works is something that I mentioned during the episode on the Iliad, and that is the frequent prominence and greater detail given to the Boeotian element in the Greek army that traveled to Troy. The Theogony is one of Hesiod's best-known works. I have quoted it already and referred to it many times, as it is the source of a great deal of knowledge about Greek beliefs concerning the creation of the world, the Titan gods who ruled before Zeus, and the rise of the Olympians. Hesiod also composed another poem called Works and Days, which I have also referenced. It is mostly a guide or manual to farming and to leading a moral life, but there are also a few intriguing references to different myths that remain popular today, such as Pandora's Box and Prometheus. Hesiod, Hesiod also may have written several other works that, for the most part, only remain in fragmentary form. Many consider The Shield of Heracles, a lengthy poem with po portions missing in remaining copies. Many consider this, uh, this poem to be one of Hesiod's as well. It details certain deeds of Heracles as well as his glorious shield. There is actually remarkable similarity between the shield described in this poem and the shield which Hephaestus forged for Achilles in the Iliad. Now, we've already discussed the works of Homer in detail, but I have not said much about the man, or woman, as the case may be, who wrote these great epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the truth is that there is not much to say. It is generally, generally believed that the author lived around this time, maybe sometime in the 9th century BC, maybe a century later. Given his references to Boeotia, he too, like Hesiod, may have been from that region, but we are much less certain about Homer's birthplace and home than we are about Hesiod's. According to tradi tradition, Hes Homer was blind. One reason we believe that Homer lived long after the events of the Iliad and the Odyssey is the historical anachronisms found in the text of those poems. Thanks to archaeology, we have a good idea of how the Mycenaeans actually lived, and more to the point, how they fought and how they died. I have mentioned before, for example, that the Mycenaeans buried their dead, especially their noble dead, in shaft graves of one sort or another. Yet in the Iliad, we see the glorious dead of the Greek army being burned honorably in funeral pyres. Now, cremation at death was a practice of later Greeks living in the post-Mycenaean Dark Ages. So scholars of ancient Greece, such as Donald Kagan at Yale University, tend to think that what happened was that the battles of the Mycenaean world were, were remembered, but not in detail, and that poets such as Homer applied their own cultural practices to fill in the gaps of the story. For example, another distinction in the text that has moved scholars to think of Homer as a much later composer of the text is the way that the Greeks in the story conduct warfare. Consider how characters like Achilles and Menelaus ride chariots into battle. Now, we know that the Mycenaeans and generally all others in the Bronze Age essentially used chariots as armored vehicles. They hurtled at the enemy and smashed lines of infantry, fighting from their elevated and protected platforms. But what happens with chariots in the Iliad? The Greek heroes ride their chariots to battle, but then disembark and get down to fight hand to hand. In the words of Professor Kagan, they use the chariots as taxicabs. Again, the scholarly assumption here is that the writers of the Dark Ages in Greece were aware of chariots, but did not see them in use in their own military experiences, living as they were in a different technological and cultural environment. 
Therefore, Homer simply did his best to convey what he thought a chariot battle would look like. But all of this still ignores the question of the identity of Homer. There may have just been one blind poet who composed these great tales, such as what romance would have us believe. Or, according to another popular theory of our own time, there may have been two, a man composing the Iliad and a woman composing the Odyssey. More likely, in the opinion of many, is that a body of oral tales existed in loose collections down through the centuries after this cataclysmic war, and sometime during the 8th or 9th century BC, a multitude of authors arranged the pieces and performed some original composition of their own until we ended up with the documents that we have. But it still remains possible that this work of arrangement and final composition was undertaken by one single blind man named Homer. As I said, it is certainly more romantic to think of it that way. Given that such fine works of literature were produced, it may be hard to justify the term dark age to describe the centuries after the fall of Mycenae. When people use this term, the dark age, it provokes images in our mind of peasants grubbing around futilely in the dirt for mere sustenance, their bleak lives punctuated by disease and starvation. Personally, when I hear this term, I tend to think of those scenes in Monty Python's Holy Grail where they cart the dead around looking for more diseased corpses, and one character explains how he knew that Arthur was a king because he didn't have shit all over him. But we already know that the Middle Ages were not such a horrible time in comparison to the periods that came before and after, only that they were different. I think we can say the same thing about the Dark Age of Greece. It was really a different age, not a Dark Age. Yes, the splendor of Mycenae was gone, but the people did not revert to pure barbarism. After all, it is this period when the political and philosophical ideas that we find present in the writings of Plato and Aristotle and Herodotus and Thucydides, it is during this period when such ideas are being born and refined. The text of Hesiod's work, written during this so-called Dark Age, shows that people continued to live as before that there continued to be political structures and organizations, that cultural and religious traditions continued to guide the hearts and souls of people across the region. The primary difference being only that everything, after the collapse of the copper and tin trading networks, everything may have been less centralized politically. And is this necessarily a bad thing, that powerful men and women are not hoarding resources and employing and or enslaving masses of humanity to build edifices to their dominance and vanity, and sending them to death in wars that only serve the interests of the upper classes? A question that each person has to answer for themselves. Answering such questions about the meaning of life and about mortality is the job of a spiritual tradition, a religion. And during the Dark Age of Greece, there is definitely a spiritual, religious, mythological development. But the mythology of this time period is not the clean-cut one that we picture in our heads when we consider Greek mythology now. These days, it is common for people to imagine an orderly and unchanging council of 12 Olympian gods, and with all the Greeks understanding the same relationship between perceived lesser gods, such as Artemis or Hermes, and the greater ones, such as Zeus or Poseidon. Archaeology and scholarly research, however, do not suggest such clearly delineated roles and perspectives. 
different Greek ruins and certain surviving lists of deities demonstrate distinct views of the gods. For example, it is not necessarily true that all Greeks thought of Zeus as supreme at all times. This is definitely true in later periods, and men such as Socrates seem to consider Zeus almost in a monotheistic way, accepting the existence and the roles of the other gods, but not seeing them really as anything but extensions or tools of the will of the one god Zeus. But this focus on Zeus was not necessarily universal. This is evidenced actually even in the tales of Homer. Recall how Polyphemus, the Cyclops, sneers at the will of Zeus and professes allegiance only to Poseidon. While the story may be fictional, I would guess that the author is referencing perhaps a real existing school of thought that he considered barbarous, the idea that a god besides Zeus was more important. Though Homer may have considered this idea uncouth, it nevertheless appears that he was familiar with the possibility that maybe such views were held by some. Now, some aspects of the cult of the Olympian gods do seem to be steady throughout the years. The number 12, for instance, the 12 gods to be worshipped, that is, and it, this is consistent in the various ruins of altars recovered throughout Greece. Frequently, the enumerated gods are grouped in six pairs, and there are references in classical and post-classical writings to the six double altars. But there are, in certain sources, sources, also suggestions of deviations from our own perception of a solid canonical 12 Olympian gods. The identities of the 12 Olympians do seem to have varied from time to time and place to place. Sometimes, certain of the Titan gods are included among the 12 Olympians, including Cronus and Rhea, which is odd given that Cronus is, in one myth, overthrown by Zeus and remembered with disdain. Other ancient lists of gods include the Graces among the Twelve, or the Muses, and deities such as Hephaestus and Aphrodite are often missing from this divine dozen. Furthermore, the way in which different regions perceived different deities varied so wildly that the contemporary Greeks must have taken note of this. The virgin huntress Artemis, for example, was remembered in the city of Ephesus as a many-breasted fertility goddess, but under the same name. And there are ruins of temples to Apollo and to Zeus, which also vary radically in their depictions of the gods and in the realms of responsibility that they had. Consider how I described Apollo as a god of medicine, of the sun, of archery, and music. Probably these varied attributes belong to different versions of Apollo in the deep Greek past and have only been combined into one god in later times, and in particular in our textbooks. So the mythological atmosphere of Greece was probably not uniform, not at this time anyway. Like their politics, the spiritual traditions of the Greeks were also decentralized during the so-called Dark Age. But what was the ritual life of the ancient Greeks like? Does it compare to anything that we might know from the religious life of our own or of our contemporaries? Was it like going to church now, assembling to hear sermons, quotations from a scripture of some sort? Was there a ritual like the liturgies of the Catholics and the Orthodox and other Christian religions? This is a difficult question to answer, first of all, because of the way that modern believers in almost any Western religion today tend to have religious beliefs 
that are beliefs rather than actions. In other words, they believe rather than perform something, rather than do something, besides going to a church or other religious building on specific days of the week. People identify with a particular religion based on their intellectual assent to certain ideas. The divinity of Jesus, the certainty of salvation, predestination, the perpetual virginity of Mary, the inerrancy of the Bible, the value of tradition. Where you stand mentally on these issues determines into which religion or sect you fall. Ancient religious identity more often depended on practices than ideas. This is actually has remained true even after the advent of Christianity in its earliest centuries. Your identity in the early Roman Empire as a follower of a particular god, be he Yahweh, Zeus, Jesus, Odin, or whoever, depended more on what you did, how and what you sacrificed, when you assembled, the ritual in which you participated. One did not go around believing in Zeus. One either sacrificed to him or did not. So what were their practices? What did the ancient Greeks do to participate in or demonstrate their spiritual beliefs? Many things we already know from reading Homer and Hesiod. Animal sacrifice was a key component of Greek religious life, as it was a key component of religious life everywhere at this time. One does not need to go much farther to see this than the first books of the Old Testament, where we find descriptions in gory detail of just how and when and what kind of animals are to be sacrificed. The Greeks sacrificed various kinds of animals at their altars, including bulls, sheep, goats, pigs, and even chickens. Simpler sacrifices, perhaps for people of lesser means or for different intentions, also utilized the burning of grain or the pouring out of wine as a libation. The altars on which animals were sacrificed were holy, sacred, and people would come and leave offerings there as well. And these offerings might include food and drink or other items. Perhaps this is not much different than modern Roman Catholics in that they dedicate shrines to particular saints and they leave flowers and other ornaments before their altars and before statues of the Virgin Mary at different times throughout the year. The key difference for a modern observer anyway would probably be in the lack of animal sacrifice in today's rituals. Greeks, like the ancient Jews of the Bibles, worshipped in an undeniably bloody fashion. However, as I stated in a previous episode, it should be remembered that the sacrifices were really to the benefit of the worshippers. Close reading of any sacrificial text from any ancient culture shows that the majority of the meat, and usually the best parts, went to the people participating in the ceremony. One reason that hecatombs, the sacrifices of 100 animals, might have usually included a much smaller number of victims is because you would not be able to eat the meat from 100 sacrificed bulls with anything but an immense crowd of thousands of people. Recall the passage in the Odyssey when Telemachus encounters groups of 500 worshippers sacrificing nine bulls. When you think about just how much meat just one sacrificed bull might provide, this was probably just enough to satiate everyone present. Now, in many other religions, there would also be priests performing the sacrifices, and they might irrigate some of the meat, probably the choicest parts, for their own consumption, as exemplified in the story of the sons of Eli in the Bible. The Greeks, however, did not really have an institutional priesthood. You might recall from the Homeric epics that there were often visionaries or prophets or seers among the characters, but rarely were there actual priests. Often, the role of priest fell on heads of households. We will see the same sort of priestly role assumed by patriarchs in Roman society.
Make no mistake, though, there were places where there were what we would today call priests, just as the Iliad opens with the mention of Chryses, the priest of Apollo. But there was no widespread body of priests sharing a common theology, such as you might find among Catholics, Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran, Christians. In fact, even independent evangelical Christians really have a tighter, more organized communion than any Greek practitioners of holy rites might have had. That is to say that things were very local, and the details of ritual were, for the most part, preserved in common public memory, rather than in texts guarded by a private group of clerics. The oracle at Delphi, a shrine dedicated to the god Apollo, is an example that falls a little outside of what I've already mentioned, but it's definitely a core element in ancient Greek religion. There were priestesses there, but as I said before, whatever their routines and practices were, they may have applied to Delphi and nowhere else. Anyway, sometime during the Dark Age of Greece, the priestesses of Delphi, known as Pythias, acquired a reputation for oracles, or prophecy, as we might call it. Sometimes this was a prediction of the future, but often it was also guidance in present-day decision-making. Like many prophecies or visions a modern Westerner might find in the Bible, the oracular statements of Delphi were somewhat like riddles, with meanings that were debated until subsequent events made them more clear. We will hear more about specific prophetic utterances when we read some of the classical histories, such as Herodotus and Thucydides. Now, as with much of ancient Greek religion, we only know a little about how this oracle worked. Petitioners would come to the oracle, leave offerings, sometimes very costly offerings, such as gold, gems, and jewelry, and make requests, usually for help in making some decision or in understanding what was happening in their lives. It has been surmised in later years that the priestess serving at the oracle went into a trance before pronouncing her vision, perhaps induced by drugs or by some natural substance generated underground and which emerged above as a hallucinogenic vapor. But we also have contemporary documents, such as those of Herodotus, that make it clear that the prophetess spoke intelligibly and articulately in metered verse, even though the meanings of the visions frequently were not so clear. Exactly how this worked we may never know, because there really are no texts specifically about the process. The oracle was, by the time any records were being kept, such a matter of fact in Greek life that it was apparently felt that there was no need to describe the details. There were some holy texts, though, that were held in reverence across the regions of ancient Greece. Homer and Hesiod principally were held in high regard as texts of spiritual import, and they were used, along with other texts, in the rites of the Greek mystery religions. During this dark age of Greece, the first mystery religions begin to appear among the Greeks. A mystery religion is distinguished from the other religions of this era by the nature of its membership. Recall how I mentioned in a previous episode that there was a religious revolution in Egypt in the second millennium BC when Akhenaten became pharaoh and essentially banished all the many rites and religions pertaining to the numerous gods of Egypt and forcing all to only adore the sun god. This led to many people who wanted to continue to follow the religious practices of their fathers. This led them to begin worshiping in private 
in small gatherings, something that apparently had not been done before. In Egypt, as in Greece and everywhere else during that time period, you worshipped a particular god because you were born in a particular village. You belonged to that spiritual tradition because of your tribe, your family, your nation, or you paid, paid sacrifice to another god because of a specific need that you had in that moment. Egyptian worshippers, at the time of that religious prohibition under Akhenaten, possibly took the first steps in seeing religion as a personal choice, something you preferred or believed in more wholeheartedly than other surrounding religions, perhaps. The Greek mystery religions, then, were faiths. They were spiritual traditions to which you chose to belong. As with our own modern modern religions, you made an an intellectual decision to believe in certain ideas, especially with regard to the idea of resurrection and the afterlife. Whatever the differences may be between modern religion and the mystery cults that emerged from the Dark Age period in Greece, this is one continuum of similarity, this individual choice in belief. But it should be remembered, there is no evidence that these mystery religions were embraced by all or in any way obligatory. The traditional views of the gods and the practices surrounding their worship still appear to have continued. The mystery cults were apparently sources of enlightenment that particular individuals sought, not nationalistic religions imposed on the general populace. There were probably numerous and varied mystery religions spread around Greece and down through the centuries, but we have more knowledge about two of the much more widespread cults, the Orphic and the Eleusinian. Now, to attempt to explain these mystery religions within the confines of this podcast would require far too much time and deviate from the historical aims of this project. However, some understanding of them is required if you're going to ever understand anything about the primary and fundamental Western religion for the last 2,000 years, which is Christianity. Now, the Orphic mysteries were so named because the literature about them was said to derive from the writings of Orpheus. You may remember him in his legendary and tragic journey into the underworld and back. The importance of this theme, the need for the hero to descend into the underworld, for the religious figure to die, as it were, and then return, the importance of this in Western philosophy, theology, and literature cannot be overstated. In mystery religions, and this includes Christianity, the hero is to be emulated by each believer in some sense. He or she must die to themselves and be reborn somehow. The Orphic Mysteries focus specifically on a myth about Dionysius, the god of wine. In this particular myth, the Titans kill Dionysius. They do so by tearing him apart. This may make you think of some earlier Egyptian myths I mentioned in a previous episode about Osiris being torn apart. Now, Zeus avenges his son and destroys the Titans. Subsequently, humanity is created, and the goal of Orphic worship seems to have been to enable the believer to reach the afterlife with Dionysius, Orpheus, and other heroes by leading a virtuous life. One of the rituals involved in this spiritual tradition required the believer to drink wine, as this was the blood of Dionysius. Now, the mythology and family trees of the mystery religions are different than what has been presented so far and different than what you may have learned in school. In this spiritual milieu, Dionysius is often said to be the son of Persephone and Zeus, rather than the other tale which says that 
Dionysius was the son of a woman named Semele and Zeus. Sometimes Dionysius is the son of Demeter in these tales, for he is her husband. As I have said before, all Greek myths have a variety of alternative versions. Regardless, in the Orphic mystery religion, Dionysius, the god of wine, is tied somehow to the goddesses of grain, of the harvest, of the seasons of agriculture, and Dionysius dies to rise again and live eternally. And so grain, or perhaps bread, along with wine, are critical parts of the religious ceremonies. One feature of this worship tradition was the Maenads, also remembered by the Romans as the Bacantes, the followers of Bacchus, which was the Roman name for Dionysius. The Maenads, or Bacantes, were mysterious women who worshipped Dionysius, drank wine, and became frenzied, going out into the wilderness high on whatever substance was in their wine, dancing under the moon, behaving strangely, and even attacking random strangers. Sometimes, according to the received tradition, even murdering bystanders in vicious fashion, tearing them to pieces. They were said to practice strange rites in the woods at night. One has to wonder, though, how much of this description of the Maenads is calumny, how much is just the male disdain of the conservative Romans for many aspects of Greek culture. Surely this sort of thing, women dancing and raving publicly, would have shocked the Romans of the Republican era before Julius Caesar. While Roman women were, and in many ways they actually had more rights than the women of Greece, they were also, in other ways, more confined. Anyway, in the, in the Roman series, we will get into the strange situation between Rome and Greece, and how Rome initially despised the nuances of Greek culture, but eventually drank deep from the cup of Greek ideas. But moving on, a perhaps more well-known mystery religion of the ancient Greeks is the Eleusinian Mysteries. They come from a place called Eleusis in Greece that is spelled E-L-E-U-S-I-S. And the mysteries are the Eleusinian Mysteries. I say they're well-known because it, they are alluded to in various historical texts, but the truth is that very little is known about this religion in general because the followers were so secretive about their faith. Like the early Christians of a later time, they were forbidden under pain of death to speak about or describe in any way their rituals. Remarkably, this injunction appears to have been taken so seriously by all adherents to the mysteries that we have virtually no hard information about what went on at the ceremonies of Eleusis. We do know that it involved the story of Demeter searching for Persephone, who, as with other heroes of ancient mythologies, who had descended to the underworld and would rise again. We also know that the poet Aeschylus, who we will come to read soon, was accused in his lifetime around the time of the Persian War of having revealed some secret of the mysteries while on stage. We do not know what this secret was, only that he was excused and not punished for any such error, not publicly anyway. Elsewhere, from a much later Gnostic sect of Christianity, we hear that the Eleusinian mystery included some rite that involved the cutting of a ripe ear of grain in total silence before a crowd of worshipers. An ear of grain. This clearly was some sort of reference to fertility of life from the earth, but the resurrection idea is also there. Recall how Christ said in the gospel that the resurrection was like an ear of grain which must fall to the earth and die before being reborn as something even better. 
This ceremony, in fact, what little we can glean from it, sounds similar to the ancient Christian liturgy preserved in Catholic, Orthodox, and other circles of Christianity today in which the host, the bread, which is made from grain, is turned into the holy body of Christ and is held up before worshipers at Mass for them to adore. This ceremony, too, was forbidden for its worshipers to speak about in the early Roman era of the Christian church. It has been speculated as well that participants in these religious practices may have used hallucinogenic substances, possibly involving mushrooms or other fungi mixed with alcoholic beverages, either beer made from grain or wine wine made from grapes, depending on the specific rite or religion involved. And by the time we get to the classical period of Greece, the texts of Homer seem to have acquired a sort of magical potency, their words being used in religious rites much the same way Christians recite scripture or say prayers based on their scriptures to bless or to exercise demons. It is during this mysterious period then, during the political and economic decline that follows the fall of the Mycenaeans, and the appearance of the Sea Peoples, it is during this time when the great institutions and traditions that will dominate the classical period first appear among the Greeks. By classical, I refer mostly to the period in which Greece defended itself against the encroachment of the Persian Empire and established itself, or re-established itself, as a regional power. Now, when we think of ancient Greece, most people probably think really of two manifestations of that culture. We think of the mythology, including the works of Hesiod and Homer, and then we think of the classical Greeks, such as Themistocles, Leonidas, Pericles, Socrates, and so on. The first manifestation, that of ancient mythological Greece, is shrouded in mystery from an indistinct time period long ago, and it usually involves fantastic people, creatures, and events. The second manifestation, that of classical Greece, is a historical period, the first historical period, really. Here we will have contemporary documents to read, texts about current events often written by participants in those events, and those events are all very relatable. In particular, they involve political and military struggles for resources and for independence that resonate remarkably with our own modern history. So with this episode, we now leave behind the murkiness of prehistory, and the tales of the gods and the heroes, to begin investigating a period of history that is much more defined and understood. The next episode, then, will begin the second unit of podcasts in this series and introduce us to some key texts in classical Greek society of the 6th and 5th century BC. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.